This is Maine Currents Independent Local News, Views and Culture. I'm Amy Brown. Three of my guests today were part of a panel discussion at the University of Maine back in February titled, What is Decolonization? And my fourth guest also has a lot to add to that conversation. We were unable to record their talk back in February, so they were kind enough to join me today on Maine Currents to bring that discussion to our listeners. Darren Ranko, PhD, is a citizen of the Penobscot Nation, an associate professor of anthropology, and chair of Native American programs at the University of Maine. He has a master's of, a master's of studies in environmental law from Vermont Law School and a PhD in social anthropology from Harvard University. His research focuses on the ways in which indigenous communities in the United States resist environmental destruction by using indigenous science, diplomacies, and critiques of liberalism to protect natural and cultural resources. He teaches classes on indigenous intellectual property rights, research ethics, environmental justice, and tribal governance. Welcome, Darren. Happy to be here, thank you. Haley Sidor is a rising senior, senior at the Honors College at the University of Maine in Orono. She's a history major with a minor in environmental horticulture. She's a member of All Maine Women, an undergraduate research assistant with the Holocaust Geographies Project, and a fellow with the McGillicuddy Humanities Center. Welcome, Haley. Thank you. John Bear Mitchell is a citizen of the Penobscot Nation from Indian Island. He presently serves as the UMaine System Office Native American Waiver and Educational Program Coordinator, University of Maine's Wabanaki Center Outreach and Student Development Coordinator, as well as a lecturer of Wabanaki Studies and Multicultural Studies at the University of Maine in Orono. He has served on numerous museum and educational boards throughout the state with missions based in Maine's Wabanaki people. For 15 years, John visited schools in Maine as a Maine touring artist delivering an arts and education program. And during that time, he visited over 150 schools. While working his way through college, he toured with the Native American storytellers of New England. He presented a contempor contemporary program in Native American stories and song. His singing and storytelling can be heard in many PBS main PBS tribal-sponsored awareness videos, independent film, HBO Lionsgate TV, and many documentaries with topics on Maine's Native people. Welcome, John Bear Mitchell. Thank you for having me. And Star Kelly is the Curator of Education at the Abbey Museum in association with the Smithsonian Institute. Her responsibilities focus on education through dialogue in a decolonizing context. STAR leads the museum's education and public programs work, including program development and delivery, teacher training, and educational resource development. She's a member of the Algonquin First, Algonquin First Nation of, and help me out here. Anzibi. <laughs> Thank you very much, in Quebec. And welcome to you as well. So the What is Decolonization panel covered current struggles against the continuing effects of colonization and its ideology as an important part of work for social justice locally, nationally, and globally. Our guests will be talking about these issues today, likely with some updates given all that's happened since February, 
And Star Kelly will also be talking about specifically an example of some of that work that's happening very nearby at the Abbey Museum in Bar Harbor. And we're going to, with the three folks who were on the panel, we're going to go in the order that they spoke on the panel, starting with Dr. Darren Ranko. So over to you, Dr. Ranko. Thank you so much, Amy. Um, yeah, I apologize if I get interrupted by whatever is happening here in my home. Um, it's a real honor to be uh, with these people again, even if it's virtually. And of course, the addition of Star is a real a boon to us because she probably, um, as much as any of us, is uh, on the front lines of doing this work in a really constructive way with, with the general public uh, as a museum educator. Uh, so I really appreciate her voice with our panel today. Um, I, I guess I just want to start by saying, you know, one of the ways I opened the the uh, panel back in uh, February was um, with a reading of our uh, land acknowledgement at the University of Maine. One of the very critical pieces of sort of decolonizing and decolonizing work is uh, recognition of whose land you're on as um, I mean, as a, as a Penobscot uh, nation citizen, <clears throat> I'm of course happy to be in my own homeland here and I'm sitting in my home in Dedham and that's still Penobscot territory. You know, it's on the, you know, on a, the, this side of the river. Uh, um, I, I think it's a really um, important thing that institutions have developed. Um, but I also think sometimes, you know, simply a land acknowledgement doesn't go far enough. I, I will say that, you know, we, we reflected pretty long and hard on how we acknowledge this at the University of Maine in that we um, are committed to recognizing that, you know, the ongoing um, aspects of colonization are ongoing. That's one, a, a critical piece of what I think a more decolonized land acknowledgement does is that, you know, just by acknowledging we're in some indigenous territory is not enough. We have to recognize the ongoing encroachment upon our issues for us as water, territorial, and sacred sites. Um, and we also, even though we're in Orono, and that's clearly Penobscot territory, we are, as, um, as, a, as a homeland, connected to the other Wabanaki tribal nations through kinship alliances and diplomacy. Um, and lastly, we, you know, in our acknowledgement, we, we talk about and recognize that Wabanaki tribal nations here are sovereign legal and political entities. Um, and I think those elements of a land acknowledgement are, are, are critical to any uh, space, but of course that's um, just some words uh, often on, on a page. And I, and I, and I, uh, if I didn't think we um, <laughs> supported that work at the university, I wouldn't really be willing to even share an acknowledgement. So, um, you know, John, uh, John Bear and I and so many others are really doing about that, that work in the context of the University of Maine. Um, like a lot of uh, uh, academic sounding terms, decolonization, you know, defining it and sort of what does it mean? And, you know, now it's used as a... Um, as a as a as an adjective or or you know for almost anything you can decolonize you know education you can decolonize any number of things and um, a number of scholars and you know uh, have pointed this out that um, we worry that its its framework or its definition has become pretty much to mean anything 
Um, so I like to just quote a, a couple of different um, pieces. And I go back to a real, uh, an original text, and I did this at the panel as well. Um, Franz Fanon, who's a, um, was a, a revolutionary scholar, uh, uh, anti-colonial activist in the context of um, the, both the Caribbean and Africa, wrote this book called The Wretched of the Earth in 1963. And he talks about what decolonization is. And I, I like some of these older definitions because it cuts to um, some of the real, you know, how does this overlap with, with you know, justice work in general? How, how does it relate to indigenous people specifically? And I think, you know, he had some good ideas about that. Um, so in 1963, he talks about decolonization. Um, as uh, something that sets out to change the order of the world and is obviously a program of complete disorder. It cannot come as a result of magical practices nor of a natural shock, not of a friendly understanding. Decolonization, as we know, is a historical process. That is to say, it cannot be understood, it cannot become intelligible, nor clear to itself, except in the exact measure that we can discern the movements which give it historical form and content. Um, I know that's a pretty academic-y, when I try to bring up non-academic ways, I know that's a very academic way of defining something. Part of it is, you know, overly defining something like the work of decolonization can also lend us into, um, you know, cutting off our knees in terms of the work that's required. It's a systematic response to the legacies of colonization, obviously. Um, in 2012, Tuck and Yang wrote an article called Decolonization is Not a Metaphor, and this is really cuts to the quick. Uh, it actually, it must involve, as they say in 2012, um, the repatriation of tangible things or authorities to indigenous peoples. Um, so I think that those elements of, um, of the uh, orientation are critical. Now, at the University of Maine, we try to make those tangible things and authorities as real as possible. John will talk about this work as it relates to education in particular. Um, I'm just gonna talk about a couple of things on an institutional level that we have done, and I can say more about them as we progress, but I just wanna talk about these two. One of them is an, a memorandum of understanding that the university signed in 2018 with the Penobscot Nation. Um, and it's, a, it's an MOU related to the joint curation of um, Penobscot Nation cultural heritage items, um, both past, present, and future. So it involves co-curation and repatriation and, uh, of, of pieces in uh, things that are in the library, things that are in the museum, things that are um, even related to the anthropology department, and in terms of uh, tangible authorities over collections and publications, even the University of Maine Press and our uh, Human Subjects Research IRB is also are also implicated. So this is something that is very specific, and it, and it restructures the authority that we as we as Penobscot Nation um, citizens have over the collections and those materials and how they are uh, how they're um, understood and categorized in the past, present, and future. Um, and I can talk more about that project. It is ongoing, obviously. The other part of this, the, another project that we are engaged in 
is the Penobscot uh, Language Signage Project for the University of Maine campus. And this is one of the things that we didn't really, until we had signage on campus, I wasn't, and we resisted, and, and John and I and others have had lots of discussions about this over the years. We resisted actually having a land acknowledgement officially up on our website, which we do now. But until we had something more permanent, like these signage pieces on campus that were staking more permanent claims to uh, everyone who passes through campus that reminding them they're on Pena in Penobscot territory, they walk on Penobscot places and uh, are wrestling with our linguistic ways of, um, of uh, defining those spaces. Until we did that, which I feel like is more permanent than something someone would just read at the beginning of a talk or whatever, uh, we really were reluctant to have uh, the, the, the land acknowledgement without these permanent signage uh, pieces across campus. Um, we've only done, we, we've done it for about a dozen buildings on campus. We have a dozen more signs and more street signs going up, uh, hopefully at the end of the summer, beginning of fall. And then the last phase of that project will be to uh, reorient and, and modify the entrance signs for the campus to welcome people uh, in Penobscot language to our territory. So th this idea of, of claiming and reimagining uh, spaces uh, is an important part of decolonization work um, because of the immense elements of erasure uh, that we as indigenous people have experienced through history, place, and, and, and other things. So um, to me, those are two tangible things that are, are, are asserting our control and authority in making decolonization not a metaphor, but really incorporated to the spaces and the collections of the University of Maine. Great, thank you. That was Darren Ranko. You were next on the panel, I believe, John Bear Mitchell. Yes, that, that's correct. And um, what I would like to talk a little bit about is, first of all, how education in itself, I'm going to be specific as post-secondary education, but um, it can apply to all education levels as well. Um, although in the public education system, it's uh, a little more difficult with set curriculums and not as much leeway in sort of making changes or ways of teaching, so, so to speak, to um, implement those. But I, I want to start off with a quote by uh, Nicholas Emmons, uh, who basically has this uh, really good quote that kind of sets up what is even colonization. So in other, in other words, in order to decolonize, you have to understand what colonization means within education. So he goes on to say, the first goal of education is to perpetuate the culture of a dominant society. The dominant culture in society refers to established values, languages, beliefs and religions, as well as customs. Typically controlled by the majority, dominant cultures are infused into economic and social institutions with the educational system foremost among them. In this way, education perpetuates the values of a dominant society. If the dominant society also is a colonizer, as in the case with the United States, then to the victor go the spoils. And that includes the histories and their stories memorialized. And I think that's a really important aspect of um, education. What he says is that the colonization of our education system comes from history. It's that simple. 
And when we look at history within education, I often, in the couple decades that I've been teaching post-secondary, get asked by my students, why do native, other Native people take Native history? That seems like a waste of time. And I always ask uh, them, how long have they been taking U.S. history? And, uh, you know, goes back to elementary school every single year. They might call it different things. They might call it social studies. They might call it civics. They might call it U.S. history. They might pick a time frame for that history in which to teach it. But they are getting U.S. history from the moment that they can kind of comprehend and pull together dates, times, events in, in the creation of this country as a modern society within the European framework of sort of the democracy. So once they get into college, that doesn't stop. They have to still continue to take U.S. history. So I've often heard that said that U.S. history is mandatory and Native American history is an elective. That's colonization. That's what we need to decolonize within the Native American aspects of post-secondary education. And when we look at that, we have to first of all look at how does education in itself know what we know? How does it gauge how we learn? And we do that through basically a series of learning events that build on each other that make us eventually this sort of monotone, mono-educational sort of thinker. We're all going to be at the same place thinking the same thing and be patriotic, be subservient to our country, to our flag, to our mission, to our constitution, and uh, without question. You know, so how do we get there? Well, we start off by testing. And if this isn't an example of colonization within every facet of education, then I don't know what is. We test everybody. We find out where everybody is. And then we find out what they know and what they don't know. And then we say, well, to heck with what you do know. Let's focus on what you don't know. In decolonizing, what we would do is we would say, hey, let's focus on what you do know. And let's build on that. Let's strengthen that. Let's make you strong. Let's make you more knowledgeable. Let's make you a sponge of, of information with what you do know. Because obviously that's something that you absorb. And with what you don't know, well, somebody else does know that as well. Let them focus on that. But instead, no, we don't do that. We try to create, again, this mono learner. So we take everybody's what they don't know, and we try to build on that. And basically what that is, is if you do take a sponge, you start filling those holes with that information so that everybody becomes a solid sponge eventually with that information. And so nobody can really grow into the person learner-wise and mentally, mentally capacity-wise that they, they want to focus on. So we take away their strengths. And... Um, what that does is that marginalizes people of color. You know, in our specific example here within the Native American uh, educational system, um, we, we basically are now uh, saying that, well, your history, you do know a lot about, is irrelevant. We want you to learn this. So 
they become less and less knowledgeable, less and less inclined to want to focus on that because it's deemed unimportant. So basically what happens is academia is the pillar of colonialism. It is everything that exists within colonialism. And that includes the buildings, the teachers, the curriculum, which includes the books, the lessons, the movies, the video clips, everything we see there, the way the teachers understand things, the way the teachers were taught to learn to understand things, the teachers' life experiences as well. So for Native people, the basics of our lives is that the land is what nurtures us. And we need to really kind of bring it to that. In, in other words, we exist because the land exists. Others exist because that land exists. Resources that we consider resources, are they really our resources? We think a spring or a good place to hunt or gather is a resource for humans, but really is it? Or do we dominate that and make it our resource instead of a resource for all? We can look at that as sort of education as well, is what do we go to and consider to be ours and nobody else's? what becomes owned. So is a resource something that's owned by um, a human? Or is it just something that is provided to us and can be taken away instantly by nature? So to resist this colonization involves um, a number of things, basically overcoming bureaucratic, linguistic, academic, psychological, and political, and other barriers. We really need to acknowledge that. And to close my little segment here, I just want to talk about um, the institution is basically uh, about how we uh, want you to think and what space that we've created for you to think in. So we really need to kind of pull that apart. We really kind of need to decipher that. Now, I'm not saying it's all bad but I'm definitely not saying it's all good, and, but I am most certainly saying it's not the natural way to learn and that there are other ways. And within decolonized education, one must consider multiple perspectives from multiple ethnicities, multiple upbringings, and multiple knowledge bases. Traditional scientific knowledge, which is not measured by degrees, bachelor's, associates, masters, it's not measured by those degrees, but it's measured by knowledge. Where Western science is measured by degrees within that knowledge, which is appropriate for that particular sort of field. But again, it's very siloed. So um, I'll end there and let the next person speak and I'm sure uh, they will have other things to say that might fill in some of the gaps. But um, that's my perception of decolonizing a Western educational system. Thank you. That was John Bear Mitchell. Haley Sidor, you're up next. Hi. Um, I'm happy to be here. This is the first radio show I've ever done, so this is very exciting for me. Um, well, we're very glad to have you here, and hopefully it won't be your last. Oh, yeah, <laughs> me too. Um, so 
I see decolonization as an opportunity for healing. Um, it intends to rectify social, colonial social, political, and economic wrongs and dispel myths that have been intertwined deeply into society throughout history. Colonialist ideals permeate every area of our current society and are perpetuated through a blind belief that this is how it has quote unquote always been, or as John put it, through education about a dominant society. My work within decolonization has mainly been with the topic of changing the name of Little Hall on the University of Maine campus, and Little, like many that believe in colonialist ideals, assume white superiority. Decolonization is the resistance to that assumption, and it is the resistance to the ideas that Little epitomizes and that the eugenics movement tried to enforce. I also believe that it is our responsibility as active and participatory members of the community to take part in decolonization efforts that will lead to the healing of past and present injustices. And in the panel, we talked about concrete steps towards this. So I have um, a little bit to say about that in relation to my own work. And I think that the first concrete step towards decolonization is to spread accurate information. I was certainly not the first person to realize that Clarence Cook Little's representation on the University of Maine campus is a problem, and I'm also not the last to realize it either. I learned about this issue when a classmate brought up his history after seeing some of the documents held in special collections at the UMaine campus. Through further research, I found articles within newspapers such as the Portland Press Herald and our own Maine campus that advocated or at least thought about the possibility of change. Even further, in 2018, the University of Michigan changed their own building named after C.C. Little when a student and some faculty members brought the issue to them. Without the work of these people to get this information into the public eye, I would not have known about this issue or done the work that I have, that I have to try to get the name changed. Since my own involvement in advocating for the removal of Little's names from the building, other students and faculty members have become aware of the issue as well. Just recently, a student from the class of 2020 sent an email out to faculty members calling for action. These examples show that the spread of information is crucial to begin change. When more people become aware, the stronger the support becomes for issues in need of attention. Another tactic that I also find very important is to start in your, your local community and move outward. This aligns well with my advocacy to change the name of Little Hall. Bringing to light his past, by this I mean his heavy involvement as a leader in the eugenics movement, which caused suffering of many marginalized groups of people, especially for people of color and women, shows how these issues of colonialism in our world are not always as looming as systematic oppression on a grand scale. It shows that these ideas are within our own communities, even if they are subconscious. When a monument, a building, etc., is named for someone, it automatically denotes a sense of honor and that this person did something to deserve that to have their name or figure displayed in this way. It is obvious to myself and many others that Little is not deserving of this honor and he does not uphold the values of diversity and inclusion that the University of Maine intends to impart to its students, faculty, and larger community. But if we can identify these flaws in our local communities and discuss and correct them, we can build up to change on a larger scale as more people will become aware of the problems throughout our country and our world. I'm not saying that we should erase the past, but that does not mean that we have to hold on to figures that no longer represent our present. Decolonization needs to start with the acknowledgement of historical wrongs and end with the correction of them. 
These methods, in my experience with Little Hall, have been proven somewhat effective as President Farini Mundi put out her statement yesterday to move forward with changing the name of Little Hall. As a part of the task force that helped to make this possible, I am extremely excited to be a part of this change and have a positive impact on the community. But this does not mean that our campus is now perfect. We must continue to educate and locate areas for improvement in our communities in order to create change on a grand scale. And the last thing I wanted to talk about was um, just briefly what my dream for what a decolonized university would look like. And my hope for that would simply be that any person with any personal identity would be able to be on a campus and feel like they can be 100% themselves without fear. And that's all I have to say. <laughs> Thank you, Haley. That was a lot. And so the name is in the process of being changed of Little Hall? Yes. So um, the president has sent it, I believe, to the Board of Trustees to be voted on in September. And then um, if that passes, then the name will be changed to something else. Great. Let me just jump in here. I should have done this a little bit earlier. I apologize to listeners. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU. My name is Amy Brown. I'm your host. And my guest today, you heard from first uh, Professor Darren Ranko from University of Maine, and then John Bear Mitchell, who's also a lecturer at University of Maine. And that was student Haley Sidor. And up next, we have Star Kelly, who is the curator of education at the Abbey Museum. Over to you, Star. Hi, thank you um, again for having me. And I, re I really want to thank Darren and John Bear and Haley for um, allowing me to speak with them um, during this interview. And um, I, I just want to extend my gratitude for that. Um, as a point of, of reference and background on who I am, I am a former classroom educator. So I come to this work of decolonization within a museum as an educator and um, as an indigenous person um, who's worked in uh, very colonizing um, uh, frameworks of, of classroom education. And, and as my work really developed in the classroom um, in, as a social studies uh, teacher, I, I was really disturbed and um, really interested in these ideas of how empire building has been a, a cornerstone of of social studies education in, in this country and the normalization of settler colonialism as well in the classroom. And so um, I really do come from that background and, and thinking really critically about these issues. And, and as I've moved into the museum world and, and how museum education works, I'm also really thinking about how a lot of our visitors do come into to the Abbey Museum with this, um, uh, connotation that settler colonialism is a very normalized um, uh, framework for understanding this world. Um, the Abbey Museum is a museum dedicated to Wabanaki art, history, and culture. Uh, we are a non-tribal museum, meaning that we are a co uh, colonial museum, a traditional museum um, that really has started its work in um, as a, an archaeology museum that has its own um, really problematic history. Um, as far as the legacy it has within Wabanaki um, communities and, and what it has, um, the kind of authoritative voice that museums have taken over as far as telling of Wabanaki stories. And in re reflecting on the idea of what decolonization means at an institutional level, 
Um, I keep coming back to the central issues of power and authority. Um, decolonization within a museum when boiled down really is about the continued analyzation of uh, power imbalance. And it's not necessarily a destination that we get to. There will never be a day when um, I look around at the Abbey and I'm like, oh, we did it, we're done. We have finally decolonized, you know? It really is about uh, creating uh, frameworks and um, ways of operating that are, um, are not problematic and that um, are working with um, Wabanaki people. A lot of the work um, that we've done here and that we've started here as far as um, mandating or in institutionalizing decolonizing methodologies really comes from the work of Amy Lone Tree, who's a Ho-Chunk scholar. And she wrote this really incredible book called Decolonizing Museums. Um, and in that book, she writes that museums can be very um, painful sites uh, for native peoples as they're tie, intimately tied to the colonization process. Historically, museums have acted as agents of colonization, um, holding the spoils of conquest um, from around the world, but especially within the American context, thinking about uh, indigenous peoples really holding um, items that um, ne might not necessarily actually should be within uh, a museum collection. And at the museum, uh, we currently define uh, decolonization um, as um, at a minimum, the sharing of authority for the documentation and interpretation of native culture. Decolonizing practices at the Abbey are collaborative with tribal communities, privilege native perspective and voice and include a full measure of history ensuring truth telling. So those three um, kind of pillars of decolonizing museum work, the privileging of native uh, voice and perspective, um, uh, collaboration and truth telling, um, also come from Amy Lone Tree's work and, and really do um, show up over and over again here at the Abbey. We're really trying to think of ways to not only um, collaborate on exhibits or, or make uh, Wabanaki voice the primary voice in exhibit spaces, but thinking about how we can do that at all levels of work um, here at the museum. Um, so just for a point of reference, um, we've been, within the past year, we've been really trying to do a lot of work with our board and with governance around decolonization, thinking about um, how traditional boards of trustees are really based on very colonial ideas of, you have a president, a vice president, you use Robert rules of order, um, you, you vote in a, a very systematic way. Um, and thinking uh, if we are going to really live into the reality of decolonization, how can we better, um, uh, share decision-making with Wabanaki stakeholders. Um, how, how are we actually living into, into the framework of decolonization? And so within the last year, um, we've actually gotten rid of the, the more traditional um, president and vice president uh, roles of leadership on the board. And we've actually moved into a co-leadership, um, uh, sorry, a co-leadership um, um, roles for, for the leaders of the board. And currently, um, the board of trustees have decided that there should be one um, non-native uh, co-leader on the board and um, always a Wabanaki um, um, co-leader of the board to really um, help with the decision making and make sure that those uh, imbalances of, uh, of power that is really um, the 
the crux of colonization that we're really addressing those um, within the decision making of the board. Um, we've also started moving towards more consen consensus based um, decision making uh, at the board level as well. So really um, moving away from this idea of always having um, uh, the majority rules or, or this, this idea of, 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 of voting in like a very systematic way and instead um, decisions now are, are really thought out um, and are really, um, they're a lot slower. So decision making isn't, isn't necessarily made within one board meeting. Instead, the discussion ends up being a lot longer. Um, but it, so far, I've really seen a lot of promise around that where um, when everybody kind of says their piece and, and needs to talk about an issue that does come up um, as far as the museum, uh, people can really speak their piece and then um, we can come back to it at a later time if, if we're not all in an agreement um, in, in that room. Um, another thing I've been really thinking about in my work, um, and I haven't fully fleshed it out, but this idea of uh, liberating resources within a museum context, what does that mean for my work? What does that mean for the work of my um, colleagues? And thinking about the fact that it, within a museum, we have a lot of resources, a lot of physical resources, and how can we start liberating some of those resources so that they are going um, into communities and actually um, um, being able to, to help community members, um, no matter what their work might be, um, so that they, they can get what they need to, to, to help their own communities. And whether it's like a stack of books that we might have uh, multiple copies of, giving those to educators if, if they need them, or um, making photocopies of, of things for free, or printing things on our large scale printer, because we have access to these things um, for um, tribal museums within Wabanaki communities, making sure that we are um, really normalizing those practices and how can we make sure that those practices are, um, are part of the work that we're continually doing. Uh, another example of that is um, actually giving of time, right? And so within a colonial kind of framework, you know, time is money, quote unquote, and, and time is um, essential and giving somebody your time, whether it's um, to help um, with collections or to help put up um, an exhibit um, within a tribal museum, like that is living into the work of, of, of decolonizing our, our museum resources. Um, so for now, I'll just leave it at that, and uh, I'm happy to answer any questions. Well, thank you, Star. That was Star Kelly from the Abbey Museum, and thank you all so much. So much food for thought. I have a million questions that we're not going to have time to get to all of them, but uh, I want to just pause here and ask you all if there's anything that you want to comment on what each other have had to say or any questions or anything you want to add before I jump in. I just want to kind of add a little bit here. Just um, this concept by um, Fiongo, it's called the cultural bomb. And I've, listening to what everybody's saying, um, basically what the cultural bomb is and how he frames that is it's the effect uh, effectively to annihilate a people's belief in their names, their languages, their environments, in their heritage, in their struggle, in their unity, in their capacities, and ultimately in themselves. And it it hinders our ability to see beyond this vast wasteland of um, non-achievement. And it makes us want to distance ourselves from that wasteland. So it takes everything we have, calls it a wasteland, everything that is about us makes us not like it 
and because something else is better, i.e. colonialism, and, um, and then we start fighting. So what everybody's talking about, I think, fits really well into his um, definition of what we call a cultural bomb, which essentially, if you think about it, put it in the middle of somebody's culture and just blow it up. And, and who then, is that again? I'm sorry to interrupt you. Um, his, his last name is Thiongo. It's T-H-I-O-N-G-O. And he really writes a lot about that. Uh, he writes quite extensively about the cultural bomb. But I think just uh, paraphrasing it for our purposes, I think really plays into what I think ever heard everybody talk about, which basically is our traditional education system was deemed not good in, you know, U.S. policy. It was actually U.S. policy that took our education system and destroyed it and wanted to assimilate us and culturate us. And um, it, it, it didn't quite work because of the way they did it, you know, taking our kids and putting them in boarding schools behind fences and separating them from parents was not the way that you're going to develop a trust in an education system among a people. Right. And so um, I just want to mention that that's a very important concept, I think, in what we're all talking about is that ability that U.S. policy had to destroy us from within based on the whole concept of U.S. policies. And I just, uh, I'd also like to add, John. Yeah. Thanks, John. Um, And just reflecting on what you've said too, and Haley and Star and um, because of my own immense ego, I I like to always have the last comment. Um, I, uh, Ann Norton, who's a scholar wrote this article, um, back in the 90s called Ruling Memory and talked about, and this is just sort of to answer the, the why, the why of this work. Um, and it just, and, and John and, and Star and Haley kind of remind me of it, is um, she talked about the impacts of colonization and in all the ways that folks have talked about it here today as um, the impacts of that have been to cut off um, us as indigenous people from the memory of our ancestors. Um, and that's, that's critical in terms of having a, a notion of a, a, a future, right? If you have no connection to the memories of ancestors who, um, as John and, and, and Haley and, and Sarah pointed out, um, have been you know, purposely cut off, you know, literally beaten the language out of them, beaten the stories out of them, the work of decolonization, therefore, as Haley mentioned, is healing work, right? It's, it's work of, of reclaiming and, and, um, and uh, attempts at um, resurfacing and bringing back the memories of our ancestors into a live and practical fashion to the way we live our lives. And the fact that sometimes that mere fact of mobilizing um, our the, the memories and, uh, of our ancestors is deemed as quote-unquote political, um, shows you the investment in uh, against that work, right? It's, it's, it's like no one, will, no one would come to you and say, no, you shouldn't heal um, um, your, your family and in the historic trauma. But when you tell them, well, in order to heal that, we have to implement these things like 
signage on a campus or whatever they're like well that's not you know that's not a good thing that makes me feel weird you know what i'm saying like so i think that idea that what we do in our work is this discomfort but it's rooted around our own healing and the healing of us all honestly it's not just work um for indigenous people that collectively you know most people in in john in my classes they're not native right um but they're interested in the 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 healing work as well because they know something is off around you know not acknowledging say you know a violence uh, or a, a you know a disruption in the land um we all feel that i think in, in our bodies and souls uh, on a daily basis so the healing work is a collective action that includes all of us um obviously as indigenous people we can and should be uh, leading and we should restructure some of the power dynamics but you know i think what say the abbey is doing with regard to its leadership you know these are these are setting things right um and and attempts at healing and um I'm hoping that's the, the 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 essence of what it is. Sometimes it's reacted to uh, as as sort of you know making people feel bad kind of work, and that's never the notion that we bring to the table with it. If it does make people feel bad, they should they should um, they should really pay attention to that and and work and educate themselves as to sort of move through that space. But um, I honestly, this is about you know more accuracy, more healing uh, and, and our collective work as educators um, is critical to that. Thank you. That was Darren Ranko. And again, you're listening to Maine Currents on WERUFM. That was uh, Professor Darren Ranko, University of Maine. You also heard from John Bear Mitchell, who's a lecturer at University of Maine, Star Kelly, who is education uh, coordinator at or curator at the Abbey Museum, and Haley Cedor, who is a honors student at University of Maine. And can we talk a little bit about decolonization of language? That's one of the things, I, I think it was Haley brought up starting personally, starting decolonization sort of within your own mind and your own practices. And I've seen a lot of people lately who are taking care to refer to Maine as the place known as Maine or using another, uh, using a Wabanaki word for different places. And there's also discussion here in Waldo County of uh, the fact that Waldo County is named after a horrible slave owner and should be renamed. And discussion that I've seen taking place online so far, I think uh, primarily among people who identify as white people about renaming it a Wabanaki, returning it to whatever it originally was known in the Wabanaki people who lived in the area, uh, in that language, is there a place where decolonization of language crosses a line into cultural appropriation? Is it a matter of, you know, inclusion? You know, sometimes there's a, a little bit of discomfort with seeing white people throw around Wabanaki terms. Is how do you all feel about that? Where does that cross a line? Anybody want to jump in on that? I see a lot of smiles, but nobody unmuting themselves. Uh, well, I, I might, I might um, okay. just jump in by saying that. Um, this is first John of all, Mitchell. yes, this is John Barron. I'm oh, sorry. Um, I, I'd like to just basically jump in by saying that um, 
I don't think it's uh, a bad thing for people to be throwing around Wabanaki terminology they, based on usually uh, a description of the land and not just a name of somebody who wants to be glorified. However, I, I have had um, arguments with people who are non-Indigenous, non-language speakers, Indigenous language speakers who told me that our interpretation of the land descriptions is not accurate that they have a different um, sort of myth about what that word means. So without pointing out any towns or cities in Maine, basically what happens is, you know, we, we go in as indigenous people with, with a knowledge of the language and we say, oh, this is what this word means in our language. And somebody will say, no, that's absolutely wrong. That's not what it means. You don't know what you're talking about you're an outsider here in this area anyway, you don't, you know, you, so you really don't know what's going on. So we don't even have the bottom to start with. We're, we're below the bottom in that respect. Um, so I think that if more people are uh, understanding the ideology behind Wabanaki terminology, then um, that gives us uh, more authority in which to um, say that, yes, we've been there because we have this name. You know, it describes this certain event, this certain thing, this certain function, this certain landmass that exists. So, yes, we were here. And, um, and we, we gave this place a name. A name still sticks to this day. So we have to value the educator, that that knowledge and that cultural perspective and that experience is valid, first of all. And then we can move forward. Um, if I could just add something to the Kelly. I get a lot of requests um, in my emails of people who, who want to rename, um, you know, a local island or, or a local road um, to, to reflect Wabanaki um, points of view. And, and sometimes I, I struggle with the emails and the requests just because, um, you know, I think about calling as a, as a project and how um, hard it has worked to destroy Wabanaki um, connections to the land. And there isn't a whole lot of acknowledgement that those, those places had historically been named, been known, and um, been intimately tied to, to Wabanaki um, place names. And, and those had over, they have been stripped away. And, and so sometimes I struggle with those, those requests of, of people who want Wabanaki people to now do the work of, of renaming it or to 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 reveal the the traditional are and eventually what I what I come to though is like you know I'll I'll tell them you know who to contact um, through you know the tribal historic preservation office or or tribal government to um, and ultimately it's up to um, Wabanaki people to decide if, if they want to take on that work but there is this. Kind of expectation of that you know Wabanaki people now have to, to do the work of renaming and, and re-indigenizing these or re-indigenizing these spaces um, to make it very apparent that these are indigenous spaces. So um, this that's just something I personally struggle with when I when I read a lot of these emails. Yeah, um, thanks, Star. This is Darren Ranko. Um, yeah, I agree with that. I think you know our. Uh, we we uh, serve in similar roles and similar emails probably from the same people, um, which, you know, reflects a real good intention. Um, and so it's sort of like, what is the the question of how to 
how to set someone on the path of their education and not, you know, putting this work, especially if it's, um, you know, unpaid labor, uh, you know, it's the classic thing of like, you know, the, <laughs> the uneducated have a right to be educated somehow by, um, uh, people who have this knowledge, but, um, you know, I think, you know, once you realize you need to be educated, it's, you know, like anything, you have a, a role and a responsibility to, to that work. Uh, and I think, you know, things like, um, and this was uh, as we struggled to kind of do the place names and building names on campus was simply the catech, they're, they're what deserves a name in sort of a Euro-American culture and, and what uh, is warranted of having a uh, an identification slash name in from a Wabanaki perspective that those overlap actually um, very rarely um, so it's it's um, the idea of naming a building with a person's name is just anathema to any Wabanaki perspective um, I will say you know there are ways you know and I'm not against naming a building after a Wabanaki that's not the point it's just that doesn't reflect our linguistic and categorical ways of thinking about space. Um, and I think, you know, that's the long journey of like, if you were to rename a county, you know, there's no, there's no, there's no easy way for work like that to be done. Cause there's, you know, the, the idea of a county with those boundaries um, by and large do not reflect Wabanaki understandings of the space. So we have, you know, and that's in some, as an educator, I actually think that's what's compelling and interesting to everyone, Wabanaki or not, in terms of thinking about the places you live in the context of what is now called Maine. Because um, I think everyone is naturally drawn to a deeper uh, sense of relation with place that they inhabit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, centering Wabanaki people and uh, not expecting them to do perform all sorts of crazy unpaid labor um it's it's it, it's difficult as that have it's not that difficult but like you know to do it ethically and to reach out and work collaboratively it does mean a longer process but i i think um more learning in uh, in in these processes that engage you know multiple wabanaki people um you know having some funds and and and, and a, a table to set around which the right people can come to that table and discuss i think um, it's not that complicated, uh, um, but it, it's not um, work that has uh, easy and simple, uh, like immediate answers to because of the categorical uh, pieces, as well as the, the parts we were talking about before, which is the erasures. So it's over, it's, it's one thing to translate something into another language, but how do you, at how do you attend to um, the legacy of the erasure in the first place? I think that's a lot of work to do in a naming or renaming. So I think I just want to say that it is um, uh, conceptually not difficult work, but it is um, uh, uh, intellectually can be challenging. And um, but I think what comes out if you engage in it in a serious way is really wonderful and and can be really transformative for both Wabanaki and Wabanaki uh, non-Wabanaki people. Thank you. And we have, believe it or not, just three minutes left. I wanted to get into some of the issues with the tribal sovereignty issues in the river and the state. Uh, we aren't going to have time to do that today, but I will direct people to look at uh, many programs that Donna Loring did on Wabanaki Windows, which are on our archives, and that Meredith DeFrancesco has done on Radioactive as well to look at some of those issues that are ongoing with the state and are uh, 
are uh, very much entwined with decolonization. And I just want to leave the one minute each that we have left for a go round. If any of you have any last thoughts as we're wrapping up, and let's do it in the opposite order of how we started, and have Star Kelly go first, please. Well, I just want to thank you again. Um, I just kind of want to leave people, um, you know, with uh, and encourage people to um, kind of con continue to question um, the normalization of colonization that we kind of uh, all grown up with, and especially within museum spaces. Since since I uh, work in a museum, I I just want people to always know that you should be questioning the voice that is telling these stories in. In our um, in museum spaces, and really think about um, what's being told, where items come from, uh, the history of items. Um, um, is the donor the most important um, aspect of a museum label, or or is it about the actual item and the people that um, that use the, these items? So um, really, just be critical. Um, oh, we're losing your museum goers. There you are. Okay, great. And we really are down to like one minute left. So just very quick, maybe one or two sentences each. I'm sorry, Haley, Sidor, you're next. Um, yes, uh, just about that last question. I think it has definitely opened my eyes a little bit about um, naming and I'm definitely going to take some of these comments to the committee when we're asked about new names for um, the Little Hall building. And I Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. John Bear Mitchell, you're next. Any quick final thoughts? I would just encourage people to um, listen, but also to start to feel. If you can feel our history after you hear it, then you can start being change makers and allies. Thank you very much. And last word, Darren Ranko. Just uh, thank you for engaging uh, this program, Amy. and. Uh, as you can tell, um, we all excitedly love uh, this work, and it's a passion and healing project for for all of us. And um, yeah, thank you for giving us space, and um, would be happy to come back. That, that's how I volunteer other people to do work. So would be happy to come back and do this again. It would be great to continue this discussion. Thank you very much. And I also I mentioned Wabanaki Windows uh, earlier. The archives, radioactive. The archives. Wabanaki Windows is no longer on WERU, but we do have a new program, Dawnland Signals, which you should also check out on our archives and in our schedule as well, hosted by Esther Ann and Maria Gerard of Maine Wabanaki Reach. You've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. Be sure to join us on the first and third Tuesdays of each month from 4 to 5 p.m. And keep it tuned here to Community Radio WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org.